the more senior you become, the more humble you have to be, the, the better you need to understand what people's motivations are, what teams' motivations are. Because uh, simply barking out orders is not scalable. Because if you do that, you then create a dependency culture where everyone is waiting to listen to your bark. And you're just not drawing upon the thousands of very talented and capable people where they should be contributing as opposed to you, the person that's leading it out. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 3% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back. Today, I have a treat for you with Howard Beauville, who is the Senior Vice President and Head of IBM Cloud Platform. He leads the the global cloud business and develops market-leading capabilities to drive digital transformation for enterprises, especially in highly regulated industries. He has nearly 25 years of experience working as a business technologist across sales, marketing, and product development, engineering, operations, and contracts. This also includes serving previously as the CTO over at Bank of America. Howard, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Delighted to be here, Ben. Now, y'all, y'all know that I, or maybe it's your first episode, you may not know this, I wear an awful lot of bow ties, and I love talk little bow tie language, and Howard just taught me the English uh, reference, or the English word for bow ties. Howard, what was that word? It is dicky bow, which my northern English accent may butcher, so <laughs> dicky bow, yeah. Well, there you go, y'all. Don't say you didn't learn anything from Lee the Team. You're going to learn about bow tie and men's fashion. So here we go. All right. So one thing before we get started here, now cloud platform. Now, a lot of leaders in the technology sector are very familiar with cloud, but a lot of them may still be thinking, what in the world is IBM doing with weather forecasting? Right. What? So what, from your perspective, a, a guru of the cloud, what do leaders most need to know? about the cloud the cloud isn't a destination a strategic destination it's a technology that you can actually use to help your company be more responsive to your customers drive better levels of productivity improve security and compliance and so on but you do need to be thoughtful as you do with Mm -hmm. any tool to actually how you use that tool and we're still pretty much in the early stage of of cloud adoption Um, and as you have with all um, kind of early innovators, they rush to the tool thinking the tool is a strategic destination. But that would be like saying a screwdriver or a monkey wrench is a strategic destination. It isn't. Hmm. Um, so um, I, I lead the cloud business in a company that is a hybrid multi-cloud company. And if you were to summarize that in one word, it's all about architecture. Um, and great buildings are built upon great architectural patterns and great businesses are built upon great architectural patterns. Hmm. And we feel that we have the right mix to be able to help you with those decisions. So if you're a leader and you're maybe in an older school organization and you're like, 
the cloud. Like, why should I care about that? I'm not the IT leader. I'm not the CTO. Why should I care about it? What's your, what's your bit of wisdom on them or, or for them? If I change cloud for technology innovation, um, Mm businesses with great heritage have disappeared because they've missed the transitions to new technologies, whether that was from horses to automobiles, from steam to electricity. Um, Unless you understand what these technology transitions mean, irrespective of actually what the nature of the business, your business is, you will miss the transition. And that will then mean that you are not responsive to your customers in a way that you should be. It means that your cost base is no longer viable. It means you can't get the right kind of talents because you don't have the contemporary things to work upon. Mm. And cloud is a, a very big technology transition in terms of how you think about um, running businesses. And the biggest area I would say in terms of what it means for well-established companies is in the past, you would have what's known as a competitive mode. Michael Porter, who's a very well-known writer on strategy, talks mm-hmm. about creating these modes to protect your business. In the past, if you were a developer and you wanted to develop something, you'd have to have access to a data center, lots of servers and bits and pieces of technology in there, and then develop against that. What um, cloud has allowed you to do is if you have an idea, you can immediately start to develop that idea into code and build applications, analyze data um, without that that, that big barrier. Um, therefore, if you're an established company, there's always an innovator that can come in with much lower barriers of entry to start to eat away at your business. Mm. And therefore you should be embracing the technology innovations that they have to the same effect so that you can innovate at the same pace. Such insightful information, really a wake up call for leaders. I, I, I think, I think it's great to put in perspective of, Hey, this, the transition to cloud and, and hybrid uh, versions uh, of that is significant as the innovation of electricity and the steam engine. It's changing businesses, it's, ch- it's changing speed, and you've got to watch out because your competitors, especially potentially smaller ones, could really be disrupting because it sounds like they can de- they can innovate, they can deploy technology even quicker using this cloud. So uh, it, some great, great insights there. Speed is a competitive advantage um, in any context, whether it's in a military context or whether it's in a business context. So being able to innovate at speed, at low cost, so that you can actually make a number of mistakes without actual financial um, catastrophe is a competitive advantage. And therefore, harnessing a range of technologies, such as cloud, allows you to actually harness the power of speed. If you've got a listener there today who's like, yeah, you know, uh, my IT person is dealing with that. Um, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm in supply chain or I'm in marketing. Or maybe, but then maybe they're saying, you know, I'm not, but maybe I need to get into this conversation a little bit. Maybe I need to ask them a question. What would be a question that a non-IT person would ask their IT leader uh, about the cloud and how they how they fit into it and how it could help them? I mean, so, so in marketing or in supply chain, if you look at kind of disruptive innovations that's happened into the retail fashion space, the whole notion of fast fashion where Mm -hmm. retailers will have different fashionable lines on a quarterly basis or even on a monthly basis. That is a synthesis of um, using technologies like cloud, data analytics, really shortened um, supply chain um, to get goods and services into the office, into the uh, retailers that actually can then position the new fast fashion they have and in the marketers be able to do that through digital channels. 
all of that runs on cloud-based technologies. Mm -hmm. And all of it is fed in terms of the insights that you get through data and AI, artificial intelligence, where you get huge amounts of data and you analyze that data. And within that data, you find the needles in the haystack that give you competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Where in artificial intelligence comes in is that the size of the data sets that you can now evaluate require sophisticated techniques that computers can provide through artificial intelligence to enhance human intelligence, to see the patterns and the opportunities where you could be doing fast fashion, you could be thinking about how you reduce logistical time um, supply chains, how you can actually improve the quality of an experience in a financial institution and so on. Um, and you need the capabilities that cloud provides because cloud provides you the ability to have that agility, the ability to scale out and scale back down in, in economic ways. Love it. And and one of the one things I liked about that, that is that you just gave us in just a few minutes, whatever a leader needs to be thinking about uh, for their own business, no matter where they are, the cloud is impacting you. And even if you know the cloud, are you really stepping into that conversation with your IT group? How can you strategically lever it for your piece of the business? Or if you're the CEO, hello, how it's impacting all parts of your business. Now, Howard, I want to make sure that we have plenty of time to, to dig into your interesting background and your perspectives on this. Um, you are rocking it over on LinkedIn. Got a great follower group there. And uh, one of the things that comes up is when's the time that you took a risk as a leader and it paid off and what was the lesson? Well, as a leader, you have to be making and, and assessing risk every single day. Um if you're doing that, you're running your business very effectively because within risk lies opportunity. Um, opportunity to actually find a different way to mitigate that risk, but also you can actually be in a position where you're in jeopardy unless if you don't know the risk is coming um, and then you have less time to actually resolve that issue. So as a leader, you should be dealing with risk every day. Um, areas that I guess I've made big shifts in my career and also then changed as a person in terms of my outlook is where I've taken sideways steps or backward steps from a seniority perspective in organizations. Um, all too mm -hmm. often we think about career progression as this ascending stairs of seniority. Um, but that can be kind of fulfilling, but it gets you to a position where actually you then are sat on a pile of resources and, and people and so on and so forth, but may not be challenging you as an individual to be the next person that you ought to be. So mm. um, I left a career in a very large organization, a large budget, at British Telecom to go to Bank of America, um, where I, at, at BT I had thousands of people working to me and billions of dollars of budget. And mm. when I moved to Bank of America, I had 200 people working for me, um, which was a seems to be a strange step. But the challenge that I was mm. interested in was it was a different range of complex problems to work on, and I'd ex exhausted all of my development opportunities in the the, the place that I was because I'd kind of worked through all the complex problems. Um, and then that's accelerated me through my career then in B of A. When I left B of A, I had 26,000 people working for me in an annual IT budget of $5 billion. Um, you've, got to, you've got to continue <laughs> Five to- $5 billion. With $5 billion, yes. With a B, yes. Yeah. So Elon Musk talks about it's possible to put people on Mars for $10 billion. So if I'd saved <laughs> the $5 billion for two Come years, on, we man. could be three people on Mars. So the- um, so the um, get us halfway there on five billion. I'll get you halfway, but you, you'd want to get all the way there, I imagine. So it's best to have the full in so the, um, and back. The uh, so the so I guess what I would say is, don't think about rising through the ranks hmm. and then getting into that position is where you want to be because you end up being then a, a hostage 
to the role that you're in as opposed to actually continuing to develop. Take risks with your career, and that can be sideways steps, it can be backward steps, um, it can be moving organizations. Don't get comfortable. When you're comfortable, that's when you start to become vulnerable where you're not developing anymore. You've got to push and challenge yourself mm. um, with the right level of thought. Don't do it on a rash basis if you've had a bad day at work and you decide to <laughs> um, have mm. a stern conversation with your boss. But be on a basis that every three to five years, we've got to reinvent ourselves. We've got to come out the chrysalis and then become the, the next butterfly that wow. we want to be. So th- this, this is a great place to sort of dive in too on this question. What do you do to hedge or mitigate your risk? Or how do you think through it when you took that big career, made that big career change, uh, or even do it in business? You know, And I, I think it would be interesting to hear from your perspective, uh, I think about the risk mitigation, because if you don't want to kind of like betting in Vegas, you know, you don't want to put all your, like put all your chips in, but at the same time, when a big career move like that, I don't know if there's any other way to be than really all in (laughs) to make it work. So what's your take? When you burn the boards, you tend to find out that you overcome every single obstacle that you imagine. Um, Mm. It is important to hedge. So, um, so always have a plan A, plan B, plan C. So stepping off the kind of the large organization of BT to then to go to the wonderful career I had at Bank of America, um, the um, I had all of the experience that I had in terms of running a sell-side organization um, at BT and mm-hmm. the engineering background. Um, what I wanted to do was to fill it out in terms of the customer side, understanding the customer problems and being del- delivering the engineering and the capabilities that I delivered at B of A. Um, so I could always draw upon my first portfolio, my first chapter of my career, if the second chapter didn't work out. When Mm. you get to the second chapter, you've got to understand that it's going to be hard because essentially everything that was intuitive to you in the past in your old role, because you became super competent at that, will no longer be intuitive. Um, And there'll be many occasions where you're thinking, this isn't necessarily the best of decisions that I've I've made. You've got to steel yourself at those points, S-T-E-E-L, to actually continue to push on. Um, Because as you push on, you push through and then actually develop, you get, you actually get the real value from those kind of positions where you put yourself in extreme positions where you actually truly learn through it. You only learn through struggle. You only learn through ab- adversity. You don't learn through comfort. Yes. Learning through struggle and adversity uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, as I tell my daughter, uh, when she has a loss on the tennis court or basketball or soccer, you either, and a lot of people say this, you either win or you learn. And that struggle, uh, especially when you don't win, I mean, success is a terrible teacher uh, in, <laughs> in a lot of cases. Now, one of the things that, that struck me in which in your response to, to the risk mitigation thing is uh, diversification. And you had diver- you were stepping into a different career over at Bank in America from that perspective, but you had this other part of your career where that was more sales focused. So like you said, you could fall back on that an area you were competent. Like if this doesn't go so well, I have these other elements um, that, that I can do. I think people may, may, making a career jump, I think thinking through that diversification, what's the plan B and C, uh, like you just mentioned there, uh, Howard, I think it can be really helpful for a lot of people. It is. And on your point, which I couldn't agree with more, um, is success is a really poor teacher because typically what happens with success is your ego inflates and you have hubris. Um, and, and, and ego yes. and hubris are the worst culture. Ego is not your amigo. Ego is actually your worst uh, enemy. And you've got to work hard 
on a daily basis to keep your ego tamed. Um, because all the bad qualities come from ego, pride, um, arrogance, and so on and so forth. You've got to keep that in check and kind of operate with a healthy degree of humility. All right. So let's, I love that. I've never heard that. Ego is not your amigo. <laughs> I have to use that. Now, how do we do that? No, I mean, I, easier said than done. We've got to keep, you know, and, and uh, Ryan um, Holiday wrote a book, The Ego, ego is the Enemy. And spends a whole book saying ego is the enemy, and yes, it is, and it leads to things where we we make we bet too big, we take risk without having a thinking through it. It can lead to a lot of things. How in your career, you know what what keeps you grounded out there? As and, and I think this is a good question for all executives and all leaders to be thinking about. Marry well. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Build a yeah. good team starting at home. Okay. Yeah, family keeps you grounded. Your friends keep you grounded, um, and you have to keep you grounded, self grounded as well. And therefore, being aware of what I guess the 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 emotional tripwires are in life, such as ego, such as hubris, such as pride. Um, if you're aware of them, you should kind of do a check in and say, okay, where am I? Am I kind of actually over rotating on some of these things, and therefore it's going to affect the quality of the decisions that I make. Um, it really is important to remain grounded. But I think mm-hmm. the key element of that is to understand your identity as a person. I see a mm-hmm. lot of people that think their identity is their job or their job title or their company that they work for or the team that they support. So they project their personality to something that isn't them and something that isn't controllable and therefore can be devastated should they lose their job, should they change organizations, should they be demoted, should their team not win. Um you've got to understand that you are the captain of the ship um, mm. and you've got to understand what your strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and every strength that's over rotated can become a weakness and every weakness that's best understood can actually become a strength. Um, but that doesn't happen overnight. Um, that's kind of where experience comes in and experience is, is a situation where you're doing self evaluation. Um, you're making mistakes and you're learning from them. Your earlier point about your daughter and the tennis matches that she plays. Um, So we're all work in progress. None of us are completed. Um, We're always going to push ourselves to be the people that we ought to be. So, so, so I'll just love that insight. Y'all, this is someone who's run a big budget, big responsibilities, and he's, he's giving you a little inside baseball here on how he manages it. And I think about the fact, and you said, you know, you are not your job and realize no matter if you're the CEO or your senior vice president or whatever happens to be your role, one day you will move on. You will retire. You will do something, and someone else will take that role. It reminds me of a. Of, I'm trying to remember the military. I heard a military leader talk speak one time about this, and this was his second time speaking at the conference. And he's and he was retired when he spoke at this conference versus when he came the first time when he was still in this high military role. And he said he had his own dressing room. Uh, he had like a nice fruit basket. And was welcomed with a nice note and had a, he could got to go in. And anyway, he, he's talking about the mug he had and how nice it was. And he said, this is the second time back at the conference. And he just walked in. He just sat in the lobby and he was given a styrofoam cup with coffee in it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you are not your job. You are not the role. And as good as it may feel and as powerful. And, and, it, and by the way, I'm not saying being an executive is all is all just roses and fun. I know it's it has a lot of responsibility, but recognizing that one day, yeah, someone else will do it. 
They, they will. The what I also say as well, like slight digression, is that mm-hmm. the more senior you get, it isn't about power. You you don't have this then divine influence that over the twenty six thousand people you have control over, you you give an edict and they all do it. Actually, I found quite the contrary happens. Um, in that you have to work harder to get people to do what you want to do because there's a kind of human psychology that. Mm we rail against leaders um, and want to take a different approach. And I was the the chief technology officer at Bank of America. And I used to joke to say I was actually more of a chief psychology and sociology officer than I was a chief technology officer toward the end. And that, that in part drove me to actually get back into a technology company, mm. the, the best in the world, which is IBM. The, um, but the you've got to understand that the more senior you become, the more humble you have to be, the, the better you need to understand what people's motivations are, what teams' motivations are. Because uh, simply barking out orders is not scalable. Because if you do that, you then create a dependency culture where everyone is waiting to listen to your bark, and you're just not drawing upon the thousands of very talented and capable people where they should be contributing, as opposed to you're the person that's leading it out. Now, in military situations, I suspect that holds true, but also the situations where actually you do need people to actually follow because of the sense of jeopardy that happens. But in a corporate environment, the more senior you become the more empathetic you have to become as well. Oh, I got to chill here in that example. And people don't think about that too, from a technology standpoint. So, you, you know, you, you think you're in there, you know, deciding which computers you're going to buy, or, you know, you're thinking about cyber threats tech and you're getting into the weeds. No, no, no. You're concerned about the psychology of acceptance and innovation in technology. Because people pushing back on new stuff you want to introduce, people not thinking about it, right? You have to, it is a, I can see that becoming a heavily uh, psychological role. Now, one of the things that you're known for talking about is this term collective intelligence. Um, When it comes to collective intelligence, maybe give us a scoop on what is that from your perspective and how do you how how are you thinking about it from your leadership strategy today? Yes, so it's 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 a kind of blanket term, but it needs to be executed upon um, in a in a kind of a thought through way. So the so first first and foremost, being a technologist, um, working with silicon, which is the technology, that's the easiest thing in the world because it'll it'll do what you tell it to do. Working mm. with carbon, which is what human beings are, is far more complicated to actually get to actually get the carbon to move in the right direction that you have to do. Um, so getting teams to come together to actually operate in an optimal fashion and operate with their collective intelligence, their collective knowledge to deliver is a really interesting problem to solve for as well. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're thinking that through, you've got to think through the stage of the team, how long you've had them together. The, the, the whole phrase of kind of kind of forming, storming, norming and performing is entirely true. You, you've got mm-hmm. to go through a passage of time where people get to know each other. You then got to observe the chemistry of the team in terms of, are the different individual chemical components going to create um, something that actually is going to be meaningful or are there going to be some components that are um, not going to work? And you have to make changes um, if that happens. And that doesn't necessarily mean somebody is not very good. They just weren't the right fit for the chemistry of the team. And you have to be kind of observing that going through. And then you have to create the right kind of psychological safety where people can challenge one another with positive mm-hmm. intent. And the positive intent is really important, the positive mm-hmm. element which means that you can talk through um, and express a different opinion. And that is especially hard now in the age where everybody is offended. Um, So you have to create this psychologically safe area where 
absolutely you should challenge one another with positive intent, but you should do so in a respectful fashion. And if you are challenged, take that challenge in with a positive context. Don't mm. presume, which all too often people now do, that it was meant with mal intent. Very often people actually communicate in a way that could be offensive from a clumsy perspective. They just may not know that certain yeah. words are trigger words. Yeah. Email so the, misses tone. It misses everything. You can't communicate. I mean, email is a disaster and, on communicating on sensitive issues or innovation. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you see that? And, and then, but then I guess yeah. within that, then you, you've got to get a social construct and it's been especially hard through the pandemic. Um, yeah. So whilst we do communicate 70% on a nonverbal basis, so you can see that for a video. Um, I do believe also there's a, a kind of a chemistry, a pheromone thing when people together, the level of creativity sparks more effectively and people get actually stronger bonds. Hmm. So you've got to find mechanisms and ways to do that. That isn't all just about the work. It's how you create um, social opportunities, whether it's working on community-based initiatives where we're all giving back, which is a terrific way to do things, um, um, to get to know each other as personalities and to respect the different positions that people are coming from. When you get that, that's when you get this kind of trigger point of, this collective wisdom and this collective knowledge to come through in a mm. far more effective way. And it's just wonderful to see the, the, just like the level of creativity and this whole notion of talented people. Without doubt, they are 1% of the world that are talented. But there are 99% of the world that are super talented as well, that have lights within them that just need leaders to bring those lights out as opposed to shining the light on the very few talented people. Um, mm. And then when you do that, you get a force multiplier in terms of the number of people that can be contributing to the endeavor that you have, whether it's nonprofit work, community-based work, or private sector work. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to binfanning.com slash insight. So collective intelligence, and what I'm hearing is, you describe it as the collective wisdom. So it's the, would you describe it as like the best ideas from each person in your group, or it's when they give their big, their best ideas, and then they start piggybacking on each of them and that amplifies or how, I guess, how do you know yeah, when yeah, you see yeah. it? Yeah. I you guess know? the simplest way to, 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 to define it using kind of a metaphor is that there are 360 degrees on a, com- a compass. Um, and as an individual, you'll see the world through an aperture of one degree. Then you get somebody else where you actually are open to what they're saying, actively listening to what they're saying, and then you get their aperture. So then you're mm-hmm. two degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but maybe they're actually a bit further to the east or the south or the west, so you fill in more space. And then you get another perspective, and you actively listen, and you take the time to understand where they're coming from, and it's a different aperture. That then gives you the full 360-degree view on a problem which you would mm. never have on your own. But you've got to get the right social construct together to be able to do that. You can't just put people in a, in a room together and get them to brainstorm on an issue. In fact, there's been scientific studies proven that if you get random groups of people together at these kind of workshops and put them in a small, small group and ask them to brainstorm, their IQ drops by an average of 15%. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, so the Because there's so, so many so, other variables going on other than the problem. They're thinking like, what does that person <laughs> think about me? Or That's they're higher correct. up than me, or they, they, they think be, about themselves too. Yeah. So they become closed as opposed to open. So getting people to the yeah. open perspective gets you open then to the 360 degrees on the actual compass to actually solve the problems in the more holistic way. So so when's the time 
that you felt like you were really able to, or either you were in the group or you were sort of orchestrating the group to develop that or or harness a bit of that collective uh, intelligence? So it it kind of takes time. And and I've been fortunate enough to work with absolutely phenomenally brilliant people um, in all different endeavors that I have done. In my current role, um, an incredible um, bunch of uh, professionals across different disciplines, different cultures, Mm -hmm. because IBM is a truly uh, global company. Um, so, um, all these different areas, um, and I feel now that we're kind of all firing on all cylinders in terms of, we all feel safe in our own skin. We can all challenge each other with, with the positive intent. We listen attentively, um, and we focus with hyper-focus around the different problems that we want to work upon. And that's evidenced in terms of, if you want to use any, any, any measurement of success, but if you look at the business success of where this company mm-hmm. is now, um, at IBM, um, we're, we're kind of breaking all world records. So you, you know that you've got the organization really firing when um, you have that happening. But then once you have it, you can't be complacent. You've got to then ensure that the focus is maintained because as a species, we get distracted super easy. Um, that's why we're so creative. That's why we're so innovative. But when you're running businesses, you need to be focused for a sustained period because focus is a competitive advantage as is time. Um, so I, I feel like I'm in, in that kind of, great position now with the team that I have that I'm working with my peers that I work with at the executive leadership team at IBM we, we kind of really feel like at a chemistry and you and, and actually the point my point final point is you feel it as opposed to you, there's a, the, obviously the measurements there but you feel it before the measurements come through and you can start to feel when it wanes and then think about what you put in place to actually get it back on on, on measure hmm. Yeah, some really nice ideas in there to think about for all the leaders out there about harnessing the collective intelligence of their of their of their team. Um, I'm curious when it comes to customers and comes to clients, how does the collective intelligence piece associate with that? Are you also considering bringing though? You know, I don't I don't know exactly if it would be like a focus group or what the connectivity would be. But how does that inform this, especially when you start talking about a client-first approach? Yeah, so I mean, so so the skills that you build to actually build the quality teams, it, the most essential ingredient is to actively listen. Um, hmm. There is so much insight that you can get from customers. You can analyze a lot of data, um, so you don't have to talk to a customer in that context. And there are many um, digital businesses that, um, that do are very, very, very successful from that that approach. But if you're offering where actually is decision makers that are making the ultimate decision, you've just got to build relationships, true human relationships. And you can only do that from actively listening. One of the kind of the most um, important human needs is to feel that you are being heard. Um, and therefore, you've got to take the time. You've got to take the time to build the relationships, even if sometimes those relationships when you first start are not in the place that you want them to be, even if they're negative. But it'll work your way through it. Um, and you always can come in with humility come in with a desire to actually understand what the problems are. You come back with meaning solutions. Customers, when they see that they're being heard and that the person that they're they're sat in front with cares about what they're doing, cares about them as an individual, that's just an an, an unstoppable series of ingredients. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, IT, technology, cloud, these are all areas that, are really under attack from cyber, the cyber world, right? There's just a constant, and I and I know from thinking about the banking side, it's interesting how so many organizations I feel like have CTOs that have 
sort of done their time in the banking world because it seems like they're the ones that have the most at stake and they're the ones that are maybe most cutting edge on, on protecting things. So I don't know. I'm seeing that. I've kind of seen that trend through some of our interviews. But from a personal level, how do you cope with all of that? Because it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job, and uh, how do you how do you take your breaks <laughs> from it all? It, that's a superb question because uh, it it really does take its toll if you allow it to. Um, so at Bank of America, um, we were attacked an incredible amount by criminals and by nation states. Um, and you say, okay, well, why? So well, it's like the bank robbers of the 1920s. Why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Um, so that's why we would be attacked. And also from a nation state perspective, it could actually disrupt capitalism and capitalist countries. But to give you a context, uh, here at IBM, we run the um, US Masters which is a famous golf tournament in Augusta, um, not far from where you, you originally hailed from. Yep. Um, and we run the uh, the analytics and the website for that. We get um, attacked 40 million times over the, the period of that um, four-day tournament, five-day tournament. Wait, um, 14 million <coughs> cyber attacks? Four, four, a, zero. four zero. Four zero. Four zero. Four zero. 40, 40 million cyber attacks in one weekend of a golf or a golf tournament. That's right. That's wow. absolutely. I mean, correct. it is one of the, the uh, golf tournaments. But it is still. It, it is yes. It is. So the um, so, but but to your to the more important part of your question, um, and I and the, this kind of work I do with kind of peers in this area for chief information security officers and chief technology officers is, is it can cause pretty big mental mental wellness issues uh, because of the stress and strains because the the. You can only be wrong once in terms of defending the institutions, um, and the, the bad guys can try 40 million times um, over a weekend to get in. Um, and you yeah. can put a you can put a huge amount of pressure on your shoulders, and you have got to disassociate yourself from it in the same way as you can't be defined by your job or your role. Um, there's a lot of work also taking place for for boards and chief executives and audit committees and so on to understand that it is just a question of when a breach will happen um, because of the amount of attacks and levels of sophistication. And therefore, the support needs to be provided to people in these roles. Otherwise, it will be a situation where less and less people want to work in these roles. Um, so um, hmm. the, the, the yeah. question is super though, because it, it really, really can take its toll when you're 24 by 7, seven days a week, and you feel you're carrying the actual security of the company or even the security of the country on your shoulders. Um, and you've got to understand that it isn't just about you. And there are areas of support that you can draw upon. And if you don't know where they are, you should reach out to them or reach out to, to, to folks that can help you on that. So do you recommend, I mean, uh, like, like what's been the most effective from your, for your personal side? Is it coaches? Is it just having like a listening partner at home? Is it, I mean, running or golfing or just getting out by the lake? I mean, what, what's yeah, your go-to? So so, so running, nature walks, um, is proven to absolutely help with, with stress reduction. Um, uh, get a dog, um, but but having somebody that you can talk to, yeah, uh, is yeah. is is a very cathartic experience that can kind of actively listen. Sometimes, just somebody you can talk to. It's not, not even the advice you get back from them. It's just somebody that you can actually purge yourself or kind of um, kind of get rid of the various um, kind of demons that you have running around your head. And we all create demons for ourselves. Um, yeah. The, um, so, um, 
that 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 is essential and understanding that you absolutely must not should not keep it all into yourself there's no strength in that you're not being a strong leader or a strong person by doing that having that vulnerability um mm-hmm. is, is really really important yeah uh, so many great tips in there uh the first one you said nature walks and it's interesting i that's definitely a, a theme that's emerged in the 175 plus interviews that we've done for stress reduction for executives is even though they're plugged in an awful lot somehow there's something about the simplicity of nature and just being outside and noticing that, Hey, these trees have been here way before me. will be here long after me. It kind of gives you that, that grounding perspective. Um, although I have to, I might disagree a little bit with your dog comment because we have a 15 week <laughs> puppy. <laughs> now I'm sure it's going to get better for us and be a stress reduction, but right now it's not so much. A little bit less, so it, it will get easier. Everything gets easy. You get you, you get more tolerance, and the dog gets better. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so so good. Well, Howard, it's been such a fun interview. Just recapping here, we taught you gave us some great insights about the cloud and uh, really what leaders need to be thinking about. And I love it because leaders are listening today are getting it from one of the experts globally for this. You talked about your career. You talked about times when. It's okay to take a step back and be strategic about it and mitigating risk. I loved ego is not your amigo. And I give you the virtual uh, high five uh, for that. <laughs> Had some really good insights around dealing with stress, the nature of the job, and how, uh, you know, how leaders can deal with that. What, well, with all that said, though, let's, oh, and also don't forget uh, leveraging collective intelligence, a lot of really practical strategies for leaders to use there. Uh, before we wind up here though, what's your parting thought that you'd like to leave with our listeners today? The, um, I guess it builds upon some of the earlier comments, which is you're never a finished piece of work. Um, and you only are if you decide to stay in a particular role or whatever else, and then your development slow, starts to slow down. You've got to continually find ways to challenge it. It doesn't actually actually have to be through work. You could do more community-based work in terms of volunteering. You can do more health and fitness. You can do sports or whatever else, reading. Um, But always be trying to imagine new ways to change what you are, new kind of the atomic habits, if you kind of go to a really great book book written on that that topic. James Um, Clear. Yeah, and it, and, it, and, it, and it's only small steps you have to do. It's nothing that has to be very profound. But if you do those small steps on a sustained basis over a sustained period, you'll you'll take a lot of distance and your life will be just far richer by forever challenging yourself and 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 kind of creating manageable and hedge struggles for you to move forward don't don't settle for you as you are today um continue to change yourself and be amazed by the different person that you become over a passage of time great place to wind up there thanks howard thank you If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping.
Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.